Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Terry Johnson. Let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll get right into the word. God, it is a pleasure to be able to come before you this morning in this your sanctuary to worship you in spirit and in truth, to worship you with our fellowship, but Lord, to worship you with the sacrifice of a living soul. We pray, Father, that as we listen to the words of Scripture, the story of Luke chapter 15, that you will bless us with an understanding of your grace and how much you seek to save the lost, beginning with us. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. I've entitled the sermon today, Fighting the Loss, and um, Pastor, Pastor Jeff is going to be surprised because I actually gave him a different sermon title for today. But, you know, being the conference president sometimes has its uh, privileges. And one of those is sitting down and saying that, you know what, Lord, I don't think that this is the sermon that I need to be preaching today. And so I, I changed it, and I'm going to go to a, a story that we all know found in the book of Luke, chapter 15. It's a story that we know very well because it's, it's part of the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. But it's the story of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to be sharing the story of the prodigal son in the traditional manner. We're going to look at this slightly differently. We're going to look Look at it from the perspective of an Episcopalian minister. Now, don't get, don't get concerned. Uh, we're not leaving the Seventh Adventist Church in any way, shape, or form. But there are ministers and researchers who spend a lot of time looking at what Scripture has to say and come up with things that we hadn't taken the time to understand. And this particular individual is Dr. Kenneth Bailey. And Dr. Kenneth Bailey is part of the Episcopalian Church. He's a, a minister. He's also a researcher. And Kenneth Bailey spent years, years researching the parables of the New Testament, the stories that Jesus actually spoke on. And he researched them because he wanted to know whether or not the stories had any connection to the history of the Jewish people to whom he was speaking at the time. And he found that as he went and researched through 10,000 villages in the Middle East, 10,000 villages, that most of the stories that Jesus spoke of in terms of the parables were stories that the villagers had had over millennia. They knew the stories intimately because Jesus actually took stories from the context and molded them into an understanding where the kingdom of heaven could be explained in a way that made sense to the listener. He contextualized, and in contextualizing was able to make an impact. But there was one story that he found that in the 10,000 villages, he could not find any like it. And it's a story that we find in Luke chapter 15. Let's just read part of this story. Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so his father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, squandered his wealth in wild living in Sydney. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in Armadale. And he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And then he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he traveled to see his dad. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. This story is not found in those 10,000 villages that Dr. Kenneth Bailey went to see. In fact, in only two villages is there a story that is similar to this one. And it's a story that they actually did not see in the same light. The first story is, uh, uh, he, he came to the village and the village said, yes, we've got a story similar to that. But when the father is told by his son that he wants to have the inheritance, the father recognizes that his son really wants him dead. And so he takes out his sword and chops off his son's head and the village applauded because justice had been done. Then in the other village, the second village out of these 10,000 villages that actually had a story that was similar in nature, the father, when he hears the son requiring of him the inheritance, dies of a broken heart and the entire village actually cries along with him. Those are the only two stories that we have from history that is recorded that has anything close to the kind of story that Jesus shared about the prodigal son. Now what makes this story about the prodigal son so interesting is that the Jewish nation, the Israelis, had a very different point of view based on the law of Moses. And as you know, everything that they did was based on that law. So the way in which they engaged was very important based on their understanding of the Old Testament. So I want you to come with me to the Old Testament and we're going to go and look at a story, not a story, a text, a mosaic text, which kind of helps us understand what Jesus was trying to explain to a people who would have found his words more than radical. They would have found his words as being societal damaging. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 to 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 to 21. Now listen to the words of the Mosaic law. And keep remembering the words that we read from Luke chapter 15 as you listen. Verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother will take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town, and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a profligate. A profligate is an individual who spends vast amounts of money. And he's a drunkard. And then all the men of town shall stone him to death, for you must purge this evil from among you. All Israel will hear of the story and be very afraid. <laughs> I share this story with my son on a fairly regular basis, just to remind him of the responsibilities that he has not to be profligate or a drunkard. Because, you know, I can bring him to the elders of the town and sit down with him and have a conversation along the lines of, hey, buddy, it's time for a stoning. We haven't had one in a long, long time. It's a challenging little passage, isn't it? 
So when we're reading that text in Luke, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, we start to recognize that the people of Israel had a very clear understanding that sons were representative of the character of their fathers, and therefore if the sons did not obey mom and dad, not just mom, not just dad, mom and dad, that the parents had the right to actually go to the city gate. And remember that the city gate was where the elders of the church actually sat, and they talked, and they would look out the gate, and any foreigner that came into the gate had to gain access to the city through the elders. The elders were the most important people in a community. They had life or death over you in accordance with the Mosaic law. So when Jesus stands up and starts telling the story of the prodigal son, the people of Israel who had been learning at the feet of the rabbis, this story being very under, uh, understood to them, this, this law being very understood to them, when Jesus starts telling the story, they're, they're intrigued. Because they want to know who, whose son is this, which family does he come from? And, and wow, you know, we would be shocked if he ever was to return to the synagogue having done these awful things. I mean, he's been feeding pigs, he's spent all of his money, he's a drunkard. He left our land and went to a foreign land where he would have met foreign people, foreign women. And who knows what he was doing in that foreign area. And he's coming back now. And when he comes back, we know that as we read the story in Luke chapter 15, that there are certain things that actually occur. The Bible says, but while he was still a long way off in Luke chapter 15 and verse 20, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed the boy. Now, many times when we read this particular part of the passage, we imagine that the father was sitting at the door of his house waiting for his son to come back home. But that's not really the context in which Jesus is talking. The context in which Jesus is talking is based on Deuteronomy chapter 21, the elders of the gate. And really what the father was doing on a daily basis was to leave his home, come to the city gate, to sit with the elders at the city gate, because the father knew that if something was to happen and his son was to return back home, that the elders at the city gate, their responsibility on behalf of the Mosaic law was to ensure that the boy got stoned before he could set foot in their town again. Hmm. Now some churches act like that as well. To stand at the city gate doors, you know, the, 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 the atrium, the foyer area. And they'll look at people as they're walking down the street and go, nah, that's not for our church. And, mm, nah. and then they'll see some of the former children of our church who will come to church for a special moment, you know, a special celebration of some sort. And they'll look at them and they'll sometimes say, you weren't brought up to be dressed like this, were you? And all of a sudden, the child has been stoned before they've entered into the city gates. The father knew this. And that's why the father actually sat at the city gates waiting for his son. And the Bible says that the moment that he did this, he ran, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And here are some of the things that we find out from Middle Eastern culture. If you can read that, the Bible says, Father ran. But... In the Middle Eastern culture, it is an indignity for a man to run. 
Have you ever seen a Middle Eastern man win the 100-meter race? No. And there's a reason for that. It's very hard to lift up your skirt and run as fast as you can. It doesn't look very dignified. In fact, there are stories of Middle Eastern men who in the face of calamity have chosen not to run because it was too indignant to do so and chose to die instead. There's a story in Turkey of an earthquake that occurred a few years ago where five men were found uh, killed under a building because they had refused to run. It was such an indignity to them. So the Bible actually tells us that this father chose to be not dignified in his haste to ensure that his son would know that he was loved he pulled up his skirt and he ran towards his boy and further to that showed an incredible amount of emotion by grabbing his son and kissing him in the presence of the elders the second thing that we see is what he does the Bible says But the father said to his servant in verse 22, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, the best robe that was ever in a house was actually the robe of the father, not of anybody else. And in essence, he was taking his robe off of him and placing it on his son. Because when he took the robe off of himself and placed it on his son, what he was saying to all of the elders at the city gate is if you choose to stone my son who has returned to us, you will have to stone me as well. Are you with me, church? This is a hard lesson, I know. Because what it means is that no matter what our children may or may not have done, when they come back to the city gates of our church, we need to look at them and say, are we willing to take our vest off place it around them so that they're safe and secure in the arms of Jesus and the church as they enter into the foyer. Because this man was willing to do it. He knew, Deuteronomy chapter 21 said clearly, that he had to be stoned. And therefore, before his son could actually be placed into a position that would compromise his health, the father takes off his robe, places it on his son, and then makes sure that everybody knows this is my boy you touch him you'll have to touch me too the third thing that we see is that he's given the ring now this is this this is what really made the brother so angry you know here he he had taken half of the value of the land and he had gone and spent it and what the father does when he comes back is he takes off the ring puts it on his hand and in essence gives his son access to all the money that is left over. It's the key to the vault. Let me just put that in context. What if, what if, I'm just saying, what if one of your church young people decided that they were gone and you know, they decided that clubbing on Friday night was far more interesting than doing anything else. And they decided that a, you know, kind of a lifestyle that included wild men and wild women was a part of what they needed to do. And you knew about it because you saw it on Facebook. Because it's Facebook official. And you know that you're all gossipers like I am. Look at, whoa, look at that. <laughs> Got him. Hmm? And then he comes back to church two weeks later. Your parents are ashamed. 
How do you think that boy feels or that girl feels when they come to church? And how do you think that they would feel if Pastor Jeff Yulden went to them and said, you know what, here's the word of God. Please share with us your testimony from the pulpit today. There would be people sitting in the pews going, Pastor Yulden has lost his mind. And that's exactly what the community was doing as well. They were looking around and saying, I cannot believe it. Can you imagine that as Jesus is sharing this story, they're seeing this man running in indignity, taking his robe and placing it on the sun, taking the ring and placing it on, on the sun. And in their mind, they're going back to the Mosaic law and they're saying, no, 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 no. This, this can't be real. This can't be true. This can't be what God is calling us to do. No, this can't be. And Jesus continues, and he continues to actually challenge their very cultural identity. And he gives them sandals. Now, in that culture at that time, the only people who were allowed to have sandals were the individuals who were family. When you walked into the home, you were given a pair of sandals after your feet had been washed. And those sandals allowed you to walk on the, 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 the floors in dignity. It was only the servants that didn't have sandals. And so clearly, Jesus is telling us that this man, who we know represents God the Father, was willing to actually go above and beyond our basic understanding of grace to make this young man feel welcome back in the home. Sandals were placed upon his feet. And I can just imagine sitting in that congregation as I'm listening to the words of Jesus and he's challenging my orthodox point of view and I'm sitting there sweating because I'm not sure that I can do what it is that he's asked me to do and he concludes with another point he actually says let us kill the fatted calf now in Jewish tradition you ate Lamb, not cows. In fact, the only time that you killed a cow, there was three times that you killed a cow in the lifetime of a young man. The, the first time was when he was born. If a son was born, a fatted calf was killed and eaten. The second time was when a young man got married. Uh, at the wedding feast, the fatted calf would be eaten. And the third time was when they were making big financial signings. You know, I'm making a contract between you and I. It's going to cost us a million bucks. Let's kill the fatted calf and we can eat. And it's a sign of our covenant. But it's the first one that's really the most important one. At his birth, the fatted calf was eaten. And what Jesus was saying was that this young man had been reborn. And in being reborn, we celebrate. We celebrate. That means that when we come to church, we celebrate with smiles. You know what I mean? You come to church, you may sit on hard benches with seats that slide forward, but that's okay. You celebrate with a smile. It's a joy to be in church. It's a joy when people have found salvation through Jesus Christ. It's a joy for me to take off my vest, particularly when it's hot, and place it on somebody else. It's a joy. Hmm. I can imagine just sitting with those people. And I can see them looking at their religious leaders. How is priest so-and-so going to handle this? 
And what's the Sanhedrin going to say now? This is going to be a shocking state of affairs. This is better than television. Let's watch and see what's going to happen. An awesome time. I wonder. I wonder how it would be if we actually looked at that Bible verse in the same context, contextualizing it for the Stanmore area to see how we could do better at caring. I want to finish today with a story. The story is from Dr. Joseph Kidder, and Dr. Joseph Kidder is a professor at Andrews University. He teaches in the ministry department. He's not a very tall man, so I, I connect with him quite well. And he, um, he is Hungarian by birth, married to an American, and there was this one occasion a few years ago where he was invited to a family reunion for his wife's family. He went along, he didn't know anybody at the family reunion, his wife obviously knew a lot of people, he knew the basic people who were close by, but as he was looking around the group of people that had come, he realized that there was one very tall man standing at the back of the group. This fellow was six foot seven. He had on a leather vest. That's it, leather vest and a pair of jeans that had been torn in several places and a pair of those riding boots. You know the Harley Davidson riding boots that you get to wear? They look like they could kick you and you wouldn't survive. Amazing boots, yeah. Big man. And he had his bare arms out, you know, big arms. <clears throat> not fat and not going to fat, muscle. And on those big arms were tattoos from the top to the bottom. Huge tattoos of many motifs that you can look at and go, why in the world did you do that? It's not going to look good when you're old, but hey, you know, that's what I tell my children. Don't do it, you know, it's, it's fine now, but when you're old, old, oof, no, that little love heart on your backside may be not quite as nice as it once was. That's just some added information for you. <clears throat> Bonus material. <laughs> So Dr. Kidder looked at this man, he said, you know, I need to go and have a conversation with him. So he walked up to him, as pastors do, we're often very oblivious to the social norms and we do it on purpose, we, we tend to be lacking in shame. And we went straight up to him and, and he looked at him and said, um, hello, my name is Pastor Joseph Kidder and who are you and why are you here? And the man looked down at Pastor Kidder and said, well, I'm part of the family and explained his family connections and... And uh, they started having a conversation and as part of the conversation, the man said, yeah, well, I'm a... I'm an elder at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in California. And Pastor Kidder stopped and said, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Are you sure it's a Seventh-day Adventist Church? You know, are you sure it's not the Pentecostal Church next door? And the man looked at him and says, no, no, it's, it's the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He said, well, it is California, so maybe that's one of the reasons why this is okay. And he said, no, 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 let me tell you my story. And the man started to tell his story. He had been a student at Walla Walla College, which is our Adventist University in Washington State. And he had actually been studying theology, but as he had been going through his first year and a half of theology, he started to realize that he was always being treated differently. And as a result, he started to have a bit of bitterness and a lack of empathy from people. And he started to step away from his theological studies and his calling from God. And he started to walk away from that. And in time, nobody called him. Nobody went to visit him. Nobody checked up on him. 
and he bought himself a Harley Davidson, drove from Walla Walla all the way down to California, drinking at each pub on the way that he got there. And when he got there, he decided the only way that he was going to survive was to join the Hells Angels. Because, you know, being six foot seven and driving a Harley, what else do you do? So he sat as a, as a Hells Angel bikey member whose responsibility it was was crowd control for different bars that they owned and for big musical events. And as a result, he started to become more and more a part of that community and he drank, uh, did drugs, and then he also laid himself with tattoos. And one day, he found himself awake on his bed with vomit and any number of other excrement and he decided that his life was over, he needed to be finished, and he grabbed his gun that he carried around, stuck it in his mouth, and was about to pull the trigger when there was a voice in his head that said to him, you need to go to church. He thought, I must be hallucinating. I haven't been in church in a long time. You know, It must be the effects of the drugs. And so he decided to fall asleep again. He chose not to shoot himself. And then the very next morning, he woke up, and he stuck the gun back into his mouth, and the voice said to him again, you need to go to church. And he said, no, this can't be possible. Put the gun back in his mouth and said, you need to go to church, was the voice that he heard very, very loudly. And so the six foot seven man, covered in whatever he had, walked and stumbled out of his house and down the street, looking for the first church that he could get into. Now, he didn't know that it was Sabbath. There was only one church that was open. It was the local Seventh-day Adventist church in that town in California. He stumbled into the church through the back door and there was no greeters because quite often Seventh-day Adventist churches don't do very well at greeting and so he was able to come in through the back door, walk into the door, and he sat down in the back. Now there were a lot of people in the back because that's where Seventh-day Adventists feel the most comfortable, as far away from the altar as they can. And so he sat down in the bank and all of a sudden everybody thought that Jesus had called them and they moved to the front. <laughs> the minister was shocked, he had never seen this before. And it was his time to speak, and so when he stood up to speak, he realized that everybody was in the front, and there was this one lone figure at the back of the church that he could not quite figure out what was going on. But he looked at the man, and when he looked at the man, instead of starting his sermon with the power that he normally had, he stuttered over the first few sentences, and he sat down. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I reckon that if Pastor Jeff Yulden was to stand up and start to speak and then stutter, first of all, you'd be shocked that he stuttered. And then for him to sit down, you'd be thinking something's not right. Let's call a doctor. The man stood up again. The pastor stood up again and went to the pulpit. And as he went to the pulpit, he opened up his Bibles. He looked at the man again and he couldn't say anything. He sat down. This happened a third time. And by this time, the church members are talking amongst themselves. Do you think the pastor had any of the holy wine before we started? You know, all that conversation was happening. What is going on with the minister of the gospel as he's standing up here? They didn't know what was happening. The fourth... They're all looking at the guy in the back. The guy in the back's feeling very ashamed and not sure what's going on. And the minister decides that instead of preaching from the front, that he's going to walk down the aisle towards the guy at the back. And of course, everybody has been longing to find out what this is about. And they all turn around, right? Because you know how it is. If a phone goes off in the back of the church, everybody turns around and looks at the person going, you nincompoop. Don't you know that you're supposed to? Or if a child cries, Ooh, oh my lands. Yeah. So they were all excited. This is it. The pastor went. 
Is he going to survive the encounter? That man looks like he could tear that pastor apart. Not realizing that the church board does that on a fairly regular basis. Went to him. Looked at the man. And the pastor, looking at the six foot seven man, said, Do you remember me? And the six foot seven man looks at him and says, No, I've never been here before. I've got no idea who you are. You don't remember me. No, I've, I've never seen you before. He said, I was your roommate at Walla Walla College so many years ago. And I am shocked that you're in church today. But I got to tell you a little story. Last night, I was going through my annual yearbook. You know the one that has all the pictures of the students that were with you when you were there? And I came across your picture, and when I came across your picture, God spoke to me in a loud voice that I could not ignore, saying, I had to pray for you right then and there. And this morning again, that I had to pray for you right then and there, and that I had to pray that you came to church today. <laughs> and here you are, <laughs> in all of your filth, what are you doing here? And the man broke down and cried. And he told them his story. And as Pastor Joseph Kidder was listening to that story, he looked at the man and said, I understand why you're an elder in that church. You heard clearly the voice of God calling you back. Well, I look at this story in Luke chapter 15. You know, every single year, we baptize a significant amount of people. Well, when I say significant, it's nothing compared to what they do in PNG and Vanuatu and Fiji. Fiji, there's one Adventist for every 30 people. Hmm? In Vanuatu, there's one Adventist for every seven people. In PNG, there's one Adventist for every 11 people. And in Australia, there's one Adventist for every 600. I think we need more PNG Vanuatans and Fijians being pastors here, changing us and coming to minister to us. Amen. I look around and I think about the hundreds of people that we do baptize and I know that 50% of them will come to church and leave within six months. Leave within six months. And I go, why? And you know why? Because they can't find a home. They find a culture. And each church, by the way, has its own culture. They find a culture. But sometimes they can't assimilate into the culture. They know the belief. They have it in their heart. But they see all of us with the belief in our head, as Milan said this morning in Sabbath school class. And they recognize that it hasn't gone from the head to the heart. And there's no action. And it's hard for them to break in. And it's hard for them to feel like they're apart. It's easier for them to see the elders at the city gate with the rocks prepared to stone them the moment that they don't do what we normally would do. And it's a challenge as a result. And I see God through his son Jesus telling that story to the hundreds and hundreds of Jewish men and women who had grown up listening to Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 18 and onward understanding 
their responsibility as good sons of their fathers. And to have Jesus challenging that cultural understanding in such a way, it is hard not to understand why they didn't rush him and try and crucify him right then and there. And I think about Dr. Joseph Kidder. I don't think about the six foot seven man. I think about my son, who's 15, who's looking, who's searching, who comes to church, who is in Pathfinders, who is baptized, but who I know Satan is going to work very hard on over the next four to five years of his life to disconnect him from his church, his faith, his family. And I pray about that just like all of you are praying about it. And I wonder if he does leave, will I be like God the Father? Or will I be so filled with my own pride that I don't recognize the moment that the Holy Spirit moves the soul? And my brothers and sisters, when we look at the responsibility that we have as members of God's kingdom, disciples of the Most High, there's one thing that he tells us over and over in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15. They will know that you are my citizens by the way that you love the non-citizens. And that is a huge challenge. Imagine, imagine what church could be like if more men who were six foot seven and covered in excrement were loved. What kind of a gospel would that be? Let's pray together. Lord, we are your children redeemed. And how we love to proclaim it. And you're calling us to an understanding of how that love can be shared in a way that's far more gracious, in a way where we uplift you and you've said to us that I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all mankind to me. Not my job. It's your job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. You've called me to love. You've called us to love. You've called us to care. You've called us to be empathic. You've called us to be compassionate. And we ask, Lord, as a congregation today, that you forgive us for when we have failed you, when we have failed the kingdom in the way in which we've cared, in the way in which we've shared, in the way in which we've been empathic in our sorrow with those who are hurting. We hurt. They hurt. We have hope. They don't. Bless us, Lord, to give that hope in such a way that we'll be able to sing this song of redemption throughout eternity, knowing that we did everything that we could as a result of the love that you have for us and that no one was left behind as a result. We think in particular of our children, of our brothers and sisters, of those who are not, not with us. They're separated and it brings us pain. And Lord, today we also want to pray in particular for Armadale and the countryside of New South Wales and Queensland, Melbourne and onward, where there is a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of questioning of you. Sure, we know spirit of prophecy, we know prophetic interpretation, we know that this will happen. 
But when we're in the midst of the crisis and suffering from it, yeah, Lord, we pray, Father, that you'll send your angels to be by the side of each one, that they will feel encouraged and empowered knowing that we are praying for them and on their behalf, that we're praying for rain not only in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense so that we no longer have to be here on this forsaken planet, but that we can go and be a part of the new planet. And this we pray in your name. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. This is Seeking the Lost by Eastward Missions Music Camp. Wondrous back again, wondrous back again.
family singing redeemed hi i'm marilyn the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple have you ever been alone lonely and even scared One day I stood alone, alone on the platform of a tiny deserted country railway station. Alone, but not lonely. Gently falling rain kept me company. The loud speaker with its canned voice announcing when the next thunderous train would race through kept me company. A lone frog croaking its joy at the unexpected rain kept me company. And my thoughts kept me company. Flooding through my mind were memories from what seems like another lifetime many years ago. We were developing a home out of raw, untouched and magnificent rainforest. We had four-wheel drive problems, so out of the forest that was a long way from anywhere hiked my security. Dear husband was off to get help, on foot. Oh no, when would he return? We had no idea. More, oh noes. The forest seemed strangely silent without dear husband. Just three little girls and me. Alone we were, alone. Night fell all too soon. Lonely? Oh yes we were. Showers of sparks from our fire lit up our landscape while we sang songs to bolster our courage. Three little girls and I. We kept heaving more dried leafy branches onto the fire to give bright, brilliant flashes of light in our clearing, because the light kept my courage alight. 
But finally, tired little girls aged nine, seven and two needed sleep. So off we went to our cold, dark tent at the bottom of a trail in the ancient forest, alone. But were we? Prayers for divine protection prayed, the girls drifted into trusting sleep. And then it was that I felt really alone, all alone, until, croak, croak, a frog was croaking in our water tank. Oh, such a welcome, comforting sound. All was right in his world and his croaking comforted me. Who'd have dreamed a frog would be a comforting friend on a dark night? I slept fitfully until the girl's pet rooster decided to welcome the dawn long before I could see the daybreak. All was right in our rooster's world and his cock-a-doodle-doing comforted me. Who'd have dreamed that a rooster would be a comforting friend through a long, dark night? It was six days before dear husband was able to return with the needed parts. Six long days and six long nights. But in that time, I learned to love the owls hooting in the night, the frogs croaking and the rooster crowing, all is well, and a kind heavenly father who grew a certain peace in my heart while we waited for the cooey that announced Ken's eagerly awaited return. But that's another story. If you're alone, you can listen for the sounds of nature too, and you will be surprisingly comforted. So my two simple tips today are simple but comforting when we're alone. Tip number one, here it is. Listen for the reassuring sounds of nature. The sun rises and sets, the birds awaken and sleep. Darkness comes, but the stars sparkle and the moon smiles comfortingly. Nature sings, all is well. And tip number two is the most reassuring of all. You'll have to wait for it. Because Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So here's tip number two now. When we think we're alone, remember Jesus' words, I am not alone because the Father is with me. And he promises in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. In those rainforest days, I proved that to be true. God did too, and so can you. And that's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple and happy. to welcome you to Healthy Living Around the World. I am recording on site in Porto at a youth conference and with me is Marika Peterson. Welcome Marika to the program. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, that's good. It's lovely to meet you here. Look, this program is about health and healthy living. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, where you're from and what you're doing now? Yes, I'm from Norway, so a northern part of Europe. And at the moment, I'm working in a lifestyle center called Fredheim. And uh, yeah, that's in the middle of the forest in a city called Kongsberg, which is one and a half hour away from Oslo, the capital. And uh, it's a beautiful place. And yeah, enjoy working there. 
Very good. So how long have you been working there? Now it's actually two and a half years that I've been working there. And uh, yeah, I've learned so much since I started working there mm -hmm. uh, about health and about, you know, how to meet people where they're at and help them with, um, yeah, motivating them to make changes in their life, especially with lifestyle. So what is your role there? Um, my background is nursing. Uh, one of the typical nurse nursing things that I do is to take blood samples. Uh, we take that the first and the last day and uh, we check like, um, like glucose or like blood sugars and mm -hmm. cholesterol amongst other things. And it's amazing how that drops when the guests are there in just 10 days. Um, because we have like vegan food there. Uh, so one of my roles when it comes to the food is to have cooking demos. Okay. And yes. then we go for walks every day and we have lectures and um, like devotionals or like encouragement um, for the day. So they can you know, think of something deeper than just normal small talk. And we have exercises both inside and outside and yeah, conversations and yeah, coaching. Yeah, many different things. Yeah, that's a great variety of things in your yeah. role there. <laughs> Quite a big scope. So that's why I really like it as well. Okay, you like having that diversity of experience yeah. in your everyday working life. That's very nice. So tell me, how have you come to appreciate healthy living and living a healthy lifestyle for yourself personally? Yes, well, I grew up with, um, with my family. My mom always made vegetarian food. So, like, yeah, she was very aware of us kids being healthy. So I've kind of grown up with that. But when I became a student and in my early 20s, I, I learned more about how the health really impacts the life. And, uh, yeah, I heard about the China study. I don't know if you... Yes. Yeah, I've heard about that one. Yeah, by Dr. Colin Campbell. Yes. Yes. So it made me really curious. And uh, so I chose, like, yeah, five to six years ago to... Um, we have to eat like plant-based food mm. and uh, yeah it's very interesting how good food you can make and how tasty it is and how now when I see at the lifestyle center how it helps people with you know depression and you know energy and sleep and it affects everything in, in your life then uh, yeah it just encourage me more and more so it's been like many steps along the way Wow, so it's, it's been like a, a journey that you've just grown yes. and learnt more and, and incorporated more in your life. So what is what would you say is one of your favourite lifestyle principles that you apply personally in your life? Oh, wow. Um, one of my favourites, that's really hard actually. <laughs> because like at this lifestyle centre we have these eight health keys. Yeah, I can mention them. It's like air, fresh air and sunshine and nutrition mm -hmm. and um, exercise and rest and trust mm -hmm. you know trust in relationships and with God and um, let me see I have to remember all of water mm -hmm. and uh, temperance like mm -hmm. you shouldn't do too much of something even though it's good in self or too little yeah so if I'm gonna choose like one of them or is there any one of those that really you found has impacted your life and experience I think it must be nutrition, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I think that's the one I'm most passionate about. But they're all important. Yeah, especially yeah, nutrition. Especially nutrition, yeah. Well, from what you were explaining before about how when people come to the center and they go on the diet there and they have all their cholesterol levels drop, yes. that, that shows some of the power of changing your diet and the effect that it has in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So, 
you're working with that all the time by the sounds of things. <laughs> and I've had, you know, this guest coming and telling me that he changed his lifestyle um, to a plant-based diet and he had angina and he recovered from that. It went away. Mm. So, you know, to actually hear the guest telling that it works. Yeah, that's really encouraging. That is very encouraging. So how has living a healthy lifestyle impacted your spiritual life and your walk with God? So one of the areas where I've been struggling um, is with the sleep to get to bed early enough in order to get up early as well. When, when I've really taken that seriously to go to bed early, mm -hmm. like, you know, around 10 or before would be like ideal. It's so much easier for me to get up in the morning mm -hmm. and I love to, to start the day with God and uh -huh. to be a, like truly awake and yes. concentrated. Just like when when I talk to my friends and family, like I want to, to be there, you know, and not be distracted or tired. So it's the same with God. So when I really take, take sleep seriously, you know, my conversation with God and my time with Him, the quality time, it's mm. so much better. So... Um, yeah, that has really impacted my spiritual life yeah, uh, so the most, I think. Right, okay, so it's had a real practical effect in enhancing the quality of your time with God. And when I read the Bible, I, I, I remember what I read. I, I, yeah, I'm just more concentrated. Oh, that's very good. I mean, quality is, makes a huge difference. Yeah, <laughs> when you wake up tired and bleary-eyed and you're trying to read the Bible and connect with God, it's a lot harder. I know for from experience. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's very, yeah, very powerful effect that it has. Mm -hmm. So obviously you've had experience working with people and also personally applying healthy living principles. Mm -hmm. What would you say is one of the things that you would recommend to people who are wanting to make changes in their life and maybe adopt some healthier lifestyle habits? What things would you recommend for them to think about or do in making those changes? Well, first of all, I, because I often talk with the guests about this because mm. they ask me um, and often it can be overwhelming for them with all the information that they receive and uh, they don't know where to start. So I often tell them, start with something um, start with something small. If you want to replace something, like if that's your goal, then you need to, to um, add something else. If they want to quit smoking, they need to... Um, maybe replace that with something like a smoothie or go for a walk mm. instead of just taking something away um, and yeah replace it with something that they like or if they want to actually start doing something um, for example exercise they should do something that they already like if they don't like running then don't start with that <laughs> you know, start like swimming or like yeah you know strength or lifting weights or something like do something that they're that they always like and if it comes to like the diet because it can be overwhelming for people if they like Norwegians they eat a lot of meat mm. and they have a little bit of vegetable on their plate so the food they receive at Fredheim is very different like mm. a lot of salad and mm. you know then they get the the kind of warm meal after the salad so they're already kind of full mm -hmm. <laughs> so um if they don't know where to start I'm just saying just give yourself time and take one thing at a time because uh, if you're gonna change the whole diet in one week you know some people can manage but very few because yeah just give it time and I share 
that in my personal experience, going from vegetarian to vegan, I spent a whole year, you know, really? just taking it step by step. And I often like, oh, this is too hard. And I went back to, you know, cheese and milk and all of this. So I'm just honest with them saying, you know, give yourself time and be kind to yourself and just do one thing at a time. So this was probably several <laughs> tips. No, but that's, that's, I think that's very practical um, advice for people. Mm-hmm. Who are wanting to make changes because it can be a very daunting thing you know people want to get to this place this end goal of better health but the steps to get there can be huge and um, I think the tips that you've shared today are very very practical and realistic for people to be applying in their lives so thank you so much it's good to have an ideal and to try and reach that but yeah like a ladder that's okay, take one step at a time yeah. up and you'll get there eventually. <laughs> That's a good a good way to put it. I like that. We'll remember that. Yeah. The ladder to health. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's very nice. Well, look, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Marika, oh, on the program. You. We have been recording here in Porto, in Portugal, at a youth conference. I've met with uh, Marika Peterson and uh, she's from Norway and she works at a lifestyle center there. Thank you for tuning in to Healthy Living Around the World. I'm your host, Casey Butler, and until next time, may God richly bless you. Bye for now. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.